The uh, message this morning is titled from the passage itself, the first few phrases in the passage. Uh, the, the, the message is titled, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And this comes, of course, from our passage in Romans today, Romans 1, 16 through 17. So if you have your Bibles uh, and you want to turn to there, we're going to stick mostly with that passage. We'll jump to a few others but that's our passage today, Romans 1, 16 through 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel. So I want to start with a question this morning. How would you, how would you describe your experience so far in your life with shame? When have you felt a sense of painful embarrassment or condemnation? either in a punctuated period in your life that came and went, or, or maybe you just walk around with it, you know, every day nudging you, reminding you that you're a failure or a loser. And of course, when I ask that, I realize there are different levels or different kinds of shame, and there are different levels of validity to shame we can feel. As a teenager, you may currently or may have been, if you go back into your teenage years, your middle school years, those are some of the most shameful years for me when I felt such an intense level of loserness, failureness. And you might have been aware of things that while your experience was really painful, the truth was you didn't have a good reason, and you can see that better now, you didn't have a good reason why you should have felt or you should feel ashamed. I remember being worried about how my face looked. My brother was terribly worried about how his face looked in high school. My brother had a terrible problem with acne. I had, I had a problem, but it wasn't as bad as my brother. And he'd spend so much time with so much medication, you know, just cleaning his face to try not to get it to look like that because he felt ashamed of how he looked. So acne can make you feel ashamed of yourself, even though you've done nothing wrong. It's just part of what happens to your body in those years that's rough. A group of people mocking you because you don't wear the right clothes or because your parents don't make a lot of money or there's a situation at your house where one of your parents, like in my case, was an, was, was an alcoholic and kids in the neighborhood knew it and they would make fun of you and taunt you. That, that kind of cruel shame is something we all probably have memories of experiencing. And sadly, like me, you may have memories of dishing that out to other people, because I do. I was bullied and I was a cruel bully at times. But of course, shame is not always wrong. It, it can be good for us temporarily. A, a man might commit some form of sexual immorality against his wife an adulterous affair or pornography and Lord willing will come to feel a deep shame that he would do such a thing to the Lord and to his wife and he would repent to the Lord and to his wife out of that sense of shame that he wants to get that off of him and the way for him to get that off of him is to confess his sin and receive afresh the forgiveness of God and the forgiveness of his spouse. In that case, shame is both warranted, it, it's, it's actually justified, and if it leads to repentance, it's become a redemptive grace in his life. A parent, and I would fall among them, can feel shame for their angry outburst at their child. I have felt shame for the way I've spoken to my kids. And out of the pain of that shame and the fear of a broken relationship, I've been motivated to apologize to my kids and seek forgiveness to God. That's good. That's a good shame-involved process. That shame has temporarily come through conviction and brought a bit of a rescue mission into the situation. But no matter what your experience with shame is or, or its source, shame is a really powerful thing. Shame represents a deep sense, either long-lasting, can be life-lasting in some cases, or shortly, it, a deep sense of worthlessness, a deep sense of failure, of self-contempt. 
Shame can make you feel a weight of condemnation that is miserable, miserable. Real or imagined shame can just be miserable. To avoid shame, people spend millions on plastic surgery because they feel ashamed of their bodies, of wrinkles and cellulose. Others will cut off family members over political affiliations because they think that that family member should be ashamed of supporting this cause or this candidate. So I won't talk to you anymore because I'm ashamed of you. And the other family member can feel great shame for being cut off. I have cousins who won't talk to each other. And there's deep shame in their relationship. So they're trying to place shame on one another out of politics. To seek an end of pain through shame, people will do terrible things. They will cut themselves. They will even take their own lives because of the shame they felt. We read stories about teens and others who through social media have been shamed for one reason or another. Maybe they've done something bad. Maybe they haven't done something bad, but they've been bullied and bullied and bullied and they can't get it off. And there've been times where we've read people have taken their lives. It's terrible. Shame feels so controlling. People will do significant things to get it off of them. In, in just a few days, all of Frederick will be filled with rainbow flags raised for Pride Month in June to reject the shame that's been attendant on homosexuality for nearly 2,000 years in the West. And this is a complicated thing to think through because as, as believers in Christ, we would do well to reject the principle upon which Pride Month is based. Sin in any form is not something to be proud about, but to grieve and repent of. But what we need to not do is let that bring us into a place of contempt for those people. And to enjoy hurling shame on those people because we can all agree that it is normal to not want to feel shame. So even if we disagree and we should disagree with the principle of Pride Month, we should recognize that they're trying to get off of them a deep shame. And that's an instinct to get away from shame that we all feel. In Daniel 12, there is a terrifying scene of the end times. And God has resurrected people into his arms and into his embrace for eternity. But Daniel tells us there's also another resurrection. And in that resurrection, People who rejected God are raised in order to suffer everlasting shame for their rejection of God. And that's how Daniel ends. Those who've been resurrected to embrace everlasting peace and joy and righteousness as those forgiven by God and those who are raised who experience everlasting shame for their rejection of God. Shame is powerful. Shame is painful. And shame is something that left unresolved, left unresolved is terribly destructive. So today we're going to jump into this first phrase in this, in this, in this passage of the apostles, Paul of the apostle Paul's and ask, how did he experience shame through the gospel? And how did he deal with experiencing shame through the gospel? The full text is 16 through 17, it reads this, and we do have it, Ed. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. These two verses are massive. This short passage is an overview of the entire letter. If we change the name of Romans, the book of Romans, to the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Paul, which would not be a bad title for this book if we were going to retitle it, these two verses would be the appropriate subtitle under the gospel according to Paul. And then these verses I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, et cetera, et cetera, through 17. Now, right away after these verses, like right after 17, Paul is going to explain the terrible state of mankind 
in God's view, not in our view, not from our perspective, but from God's perspective, he's going to tell us the state of mankind. And it's terrible news. He will do that through the rest of one, through all of two, and through most of all of three in some of the saddest and most sobering passages in the scriptures. But, but right here, before he does that, before that misery is unpacked, he previews the solution to that misery. It's almost like, I gotta tell you a lot of bad things, but wait, 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 let me, let me, let me give you Let me give you a reason to hold on through these bad things. At the start, I want to tell you there's a solution to all the bad things I'm going to tell you about. There's an incredible solution. But he knows he has to say the bad things. And this is the solution. Paul calls it the gospel. It is the good news. And that, in Paul's writing, always means at least Jesus Christ crucified for our sins and risen over all things. The gospel always means, at least in Paul's vernacular, Jesus Christ crucified for our sins and risen as Lord of all to bring us to God. And of course, Paul's gospel includes all the implications that flow from Christ's death and resurrection. Paul says that through the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection, the righteousness of God is revealed for our salvation. This is a beautiful and mysterious way that God's salvation is revealed in Romans. Paul calls it the righteousness of God revealed. That's probably not a way that you're used to thinking of the gospel, the righteousness of God revealed. But that's gonna be Paul's way of explaining the beauty of the gospel to us in this letter. For chapters and chapters and chapters, he calls it the revelation of the righteousness of God that becomes our salvation. We're not gonna get into the weeds of that today, but I just wanna preview that. Paul's trying to say, this is the beauty of the gospel. It reveals the righteousness of God for our salvation as his righteousness is given to us in the gospel. Paul calls the gospel the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And this is a preview of other things Paul will say or intimate in this letter. People get saved and rescued through this message. Through this message. It is a message And through the proclamation of this message, God's power is unleashed. We say the message. We hold on to the message. We come back to the message in the truth of our hearts. And as we do that, God's Holy Spirit unleashes power into our lives. So Paul's going to make holding on to the gospel and preaching the gospel to this church of Christians a big priority, not just to the lost around them, but to this church, he's going to unpack the gospel because he knows that as they hear it, as they listen to it, as they come to deeper and greater levels of understanding of it, God's Holy Spirit will attend that and he will continue to save them and restore them and renew them. It's another way of saying is we should pay attention to what Paul says in this letter so we can experience that kind of power as well. So these two passages sum up the entire letter. They will justify several messages on their own. We'll, we'll do that. But today I want us to come back to this question that Paul asked at the very beginning in, in his statement. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So the first, I want to answer two things. Why does Paul say he was not ashamed of the gospel? First, Why does Paul say he's not ashamed of the gospel? And secondly, what's his response to the shame of the gospel? Why does he say I'm not ashamed? And what's his response to the shame that attends the gospel, that comes with the gospel? So first, why did Paul say he was not ashamed of the gospel? And I I don't mean when I say this, why wasn't Paul ashamed of the gospel? Like, why wasn't Paul ashamed of the gospel? Why did he say he wasn't ashamed of the gospel? Because we, we, in, in one sense, that's obvious from the passage. Paul believes the gospel is, is incredible, is magnificent, is the only hope for mankind and the message through which God saves. So we know that Paul is not ashamed. We know why he should not be ashamed of the gospel. But why did he bring this up? Like, why did he even say this? He says, I'm coming to you guys in Rome Why couldn't he say, because I want to talk to you guys about the gospel. He doesn't say that. He says, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So we should stop and recognize, like, 
this is weird, right? Like, Paul, why'd you bring up shame? We weren't ashamed before. We didn't think you should be ashamed. And now you're talking about shame. Well, let's go back to the verse before, because Paul says, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's like he's answering a question because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. If somebody gets up and they walk out of this room right now, you might say, why'd you get up? Because I had to go to the bathroom or because I got really tired of Albert's message or whatever. But, but the point is he's answering a question they didn't ask, but the question is in here. It's, it's just in the verses before. So if we go back to 13 and 15, he says, I do not want you to be unaware brothers and sisters, it's generic, that, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul says, I am under obligation to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Something in there brings to mind in Paul's heart shame. So he says, without making it clear to them, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. Why? Why did thinking about his obligation to Greeks, to barbarians, to wise and foolish, why did it bring up this shame question in Paul's mind? So I have a good friend who sells pharmaceutical products. He lives in California and he sells oncology pharmaceutical products for, for cancer. It, that is, he's, he works for scientists at Eli Lilly who, who make medications for various illnesses, and in this case, cancer. And his job is to go to doctors. He goes around to m- medical professionals and hospitals to explain his medication. If I could say it this way, Paul is like a spiritual cancer medication salesman. His job is to, from God, Jesus Christ has commissioned him, his job is to go around to people all dying of spiritual cancer and to try to sell them his spiritual cancer medication called the gospel. That's his job. Now, Paul has a big problem that my friend Harper doesn't have. When Paul goes to sell his cancer medications, the clients never say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, let me back up. When my friend Harper, let's get in his shoes, when he goes off in San Francisco to different labs and hospitals, and when he goes to sell his cancer medications, the clients never say to him, there is there's no such thing as cancer. You liar. You fraud, you fool, you must have a demon, you bigot, you hateful, ungrateful person. They never beat him. They never throw him into prison. They never try to kill him. They say, yeah, cancer's awful. Tell us what you got. Let's learn about what your latest research has shown and what we might be able to do to benefit the patients we care for and love. That never happens to Paul. This is what happens to Paul all the time. He gets ridiculed. He gets beaten. Attempted assassinations. You can't read through his missionary journeys and acts without seeing him ridiculed, beaten in this city, escaped from that, then have to run from assassins in this city, and then thrown into prison over here, and then brought in chains before kings and rulers over here. And that's, that's his life. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is speaking to a church that he loves. This is not, this is, these are born again Christians and he's nourished them in person. Perhaps for two years, he lived with them, at least in part. And they've turned against him because false teachers have come from Israel and they've turned them, they've turned this beloved church Paul planted against Paul. These are his children in the faith. He calls them a father to them and they are now his accusers. In order to win them back, he asks them to consider the integrity of his life on display because of the willingness that he's had to suffer for the gospel. So he says to them, are are they servants of Christ? These false teachers, I am a better one. 
I'm, and he says, I admit I'm talking like a madman. But he's not boasting to try to get them to think he's great. He's, he's boasting to rescue the true ministry that he has into their lives through Jesus Christ. He says, I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Earlier in this same chapter, Paul says in speaking about his life, we have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul says to the general public, I am like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. This is what it was like for Paul to be a debtor to Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and the foolish. He has a cure for a disease they don't believe in and they don't want and they hate his message and their response to being told that they have this disease and that they need this cure is to heap shame on him. To heap shame on him. To, to, to him and this message, they heap shame. You should be ashamed of yourself. Look at you, poor, homeless, been to prison, Rejected by your people. Can't keep your followers together with your pathetic message. Because your message is a fairy tale. Or because your message is rebellion against Yahweh. Or it's for weak-minded fools who need a crutch. Or your Messiah was a demon and a charlatan. Or your message is a doctrine of demons or it's pure childish drivel, or it's hateful bigotry against our pantheon of gods and their values. So that's what comes to mind as he rehearses in his mind his debt he owes to preach the gospel to these people. And so into those voices and into those memories, into those conflicts and tensions, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed, Romans. I am not ashamed, citizens of Frederick. I am not ashamed, Facebook friends. This is your only hope. This is God's rescue invitation to you. This is your only hope to come to my Christ who rules all things, who's given this window of time for mankind to repent back to him. I'm not ashamed because he will see that this message goes throughout the whole world over the next 2,000 years and he will see that this message will change the world over the next 2,000 years until every tongue and tribe and nation and a number no one can count is rescued by this message. So you can heap shame on me, but I will not be ashamed. You can try to shame me and bully me, but I will not be ashamed. And I will not receive your bully. And he went on to preach the gospel until the day his head was cut off or he was crucified upside down like Peter. I don't know exactly what happened to Paul, but he was murdered for the gospel. But he kept preaching it until that day. I think he was beheaded. But that's the answer to our first question. Why did Paul say he was not ashamed of the gospel? 
because he lived in a world and the believers in Rome lived in a world where the gospel was ridiculed, where those who believed it were the recipients, recipients of shaming. The world wanted them to be ashamed. So let's answer now our second question. What was his response to the shame of the gospel? How did he respond to this? We, I talked about it a little bit, but I want to get down deeper under the hood of his response. In Hebrews 12, 2, we're told this about Jesus Christ. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. Let's think about this. Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. And, and here's part of how he endured it. He thought about the joy that was coming. And in response, he despised the shame that was hurled at him. Jesus underwent a terrible, terrible abuse from men empowered by Satan and demonic forces. All of the evil darkness in the spirit world was coming against him to shame him. It was designed to make him feel ashamed of himself and to destroy him. He was betrayed by his disciple, one of his closest companions. He was abandoned by the rest of his friends. He was accused of blaspheming before the court of his nation. He was accused of blaspheming the God that he loved above all things. He was rejected by his own people who in a crowd that had just a few days earlier had said, Hosanna, some of those same people now screamed out, crucify him, crucify him. He was mocked with beatings and a crown of thorns. Remember those Romans? They didn't just beat him up. They said, prophesy, Messiah, who hit you? Who struck you? They laughed at him and ridiculed him, heaping shame on him. He was scourged with lashes of leather and metal and bone that ripped skin off of his back and his legs and his stomach. He was stripped naked. He was stripped naked and made to carry a cross before taunting crowds and grieving shocked followers. Then he was publicly nailed to a tree in that same nakedness, hung up on a wooden cross, mocked by his murderers as he laid down his life for the sins of the people who didn't believe in him. And in the face of that tremendous chorus calling for him to drown in that shame, Jesus despised it. He despised it. That Greek word means he looked down on it or he scorned it or he disregarded it. He didn't give it the time of day. He didn't consider it worth anything. It was worthless. In other words, Jesus shamed that shame. Those ideas that came at him, that he's a failure, that he's a loser, that he's abandoned by God. And well, ironically, in one sense, he was for a time that his life was useless. Jesus considered those ideas worthless. He was surely sad that people mocked him, but he didn't give their mocking an ounce of credit. He didn't receive it. He shamed it. He looked down on it. He held it in contempt. Paul said, the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. God isn't impressed by the wisdom of the world. He calls it foolishness. Jesus said in Luke 16, 15, what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Let's try to unpack that a little bit. What's most valued in our world? How much money you have. I mean, if you're old enough, you realize that that's such a big deal. 
like whether you have money, how beautiful you are. If you're beautiful, if you're super handsome, <laughs> it's a, it, your life is very, very different because of that than if you're not. It just is true how popular you are. Especially you guys in school know the feelings of this. Who's popular? You're just drawn. Oh man, if the popular kids, if they come near you, you just feel so much more special. And if they condemn you, you just feel condemned. I've gone through that in ministry. You know, like, oh wow, I'm, 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 I've been invited to this special coffee with this super preacher guy. And there's nothing wrong with a super preacher guy. But those feelings of feeling extra special because I'm sitting and having coffee with you know, Al Mohler, I get to walk with John Piper down. So it's worthless to God. I've never gotten to walk anywhere with John Piper. But, but I, I have been, you know, privately preached to by Al Mohler with a crew of up and coming pastors who are going to be the, the ones, the next generation. I think it's worthless to God. What was going on in my heart? was worthless to God. They were doing a good thing, probably. Worthless celebrity preacher feelings. What college you went to. I grew up, that was the thing. What college you went to. Oh my, I mean, I'm tempted to tell you the pedigree of colleges that att attend my family history. It's a trap. It's a trap. I mean, go to a good school if you can and learn good things to do good things but your name on the back of that car. It's like, we, we had this Honda Civic. I felt like we had more stickers of colleges on there than like, we, we had window space for them because we just wanted people to know. Da, da, da. I mean, I had nothing to do with some of those colleges, you know, my dad's colleges, my, you know, we would have looked for my third cousin's Ivy League school if we could throw it on the back of our car. It's worthless to God. It's worthless. How high up you are in your job, your position at work. I don't mean like don't work hard and, and steward your job well. And if you get promoted, that's a great thing. But like wanting to be valued by people because you have this title, it's worthless. How intellectual or funny or brilliant or talented you are, all God-given gifts as a measure of real personal worth, that should impress people, worthless to God. Good gifts, he wants us to steward, not reasons to boast in ourselves. And chains, if we do, chains for us, if we put our hope in those things. And we do, we struggle to do that. How many social media followers you have? If your ethics match the current flow of social culture, do you buy into this ism? Do you buy into this ism? Wherever it divides from Christ, it's worthless to God. Worthless. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Now, we want to be careful. Like I said, steward your job. If you're beautiful or intelligent, those are nice gifts that God gave you to steward well. It's just that sin and the world takes these things and twists them and they make them gods to us. They put them higher than things like love and humility and integrity and servanthood. So it's foolishness to take those things and do with them what the world does and what the world in the church does to make those things one's primary concern and value. And when those values inevitably seek to shame Christ and his gospel. God doesn't sympathize or apologize or try to negotiate with that shame. He considers that shame worthy of shame. When this world seeks to shame the message of Christ and his gospel, God does not sympathize or apologize or try to negotiate with that shame, he considers that worthy of shame. And his people should too. They must remember the real eternal stakes that are at risk and how anyone treats Jesus Christ. 
And what anyone does with this offer of forgiveness in the gospel is what matters most, infinitely more than anything else about them and about this world and and what's important. What we do with Jesus Christ matters infinitely more than anything else. And we must not be ashamed of that. We must not be ashamed of him or his gospel. Rather, we're called to boast in him. We're called to boast in him. Oh, if God would give us eyes to see and not cower in who he is, it would change our lives. For him to be increasingly, increasingly, increasingly the boast of our heart would set us free and change our lives. And slower than we want, it is. So Jesus was able to reject the shame and shame it. It says, for the joy set before him. He counted worthy what God said about him and what God was going to do with his life. Save millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people. And seat him at his right hand, high above all things. That at his name, every knee will bow. He counted that joy and he despised the shame. This is what Paul does in three, Philippians 3. He says, whatever gain I had, he's talking about worldly labels. In his way, he's talking about the college he went to, what job promotions he had, how awesome he looked to other people. He's railing off this list of human attributes that made him a winner in the world's eyes. And he says, whatever gain I had in those things, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing joy, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You can't despise shame if you don't know the good of knowing God. You can't despise shame in the right way if you don't know the good of knowing God. If you don't know the treasure that Jesus is, how are you going to look at other things in light of who he is as a treasure? You can't. You can't. That's why we have to stay close to him. That's why we have to stay close to him in his word and his prayer and plead with him. Show yourself to me so that I can see the joy it is to know you and to have you. And when that shame comes, I can say, no, I'm not going to receive that. So I can see what you say about me, who you say I am, forgiven, righteous in you. I don't have to twist myself and contort myself to please that person in an ungodly and life-suffocating way because of what you say about me and who you say I am. I don't have to be ashamed. We have to see who he is and his beauty and what he's given to us. The last thing I want to point out in terms of how Paul handled shame is, is the most astounding thing to me. See, Paul could have taken this world that held him in shame and he could have sought to make them feel ashamed And he could have hit them back really hard. I don't mean in a redemptive way, like a rebuke or standing for the truth for their sake. I mean, he could have held them in contempt and mocked them and ridiculed them in a similar spirit of hatred and antagonism with which he treated them. And and I bet if you think in the Rolodex of your mind about people who have scared you, hurt you, condemned you, made you feel afraid, you have that instinct too. Like, man, I just... I was telling Mike this week, I, I, I have to pray for a certain person because every once in a while, I just imagine what they've done, what I feel like they've done to me. And, and I just want to I, I have an imaginary fist fight with them in a parking lot. And I, I, I want to knock them out. I want to see them exposed for who they are and what they've done. And I, that's just not healthy because I'm called to pray for my enemies 
And that doesn't, it becomes poison in my own heart. And Paul could have done that. But not only did he not do that, which is good not to do that and commanded not to do that. Not only did he not do that, look what he says about them. This is amazing. He says, I am under obligation to them. I'm indebted to them. This is profound counsel to us. Listen, in the beginning of the 20th century, Christianity, the Bible, the values of Christ, the values of Christians were in general admired in this culture, in this nation. In the beginning of the 20th century, Christianity was lauded and admired. In general, it was. Beginning in the 50s and 60s, massive social upheaval generated an incredible sea change in cultural views concerning the gospel and Christianity. And over the years, since then, Christian beliefs that were once admired became simply respected. Not admired, not envied, but respected. And then over the years, those respected ideas became tolerated. We'll tolerate you. You can have a place at the table of ideas. And then increasingly, as time has gone on, our savior and our beliefs have not only been not respected, not admired, not tolerated, but now we're moving into a phase in our culture where Christ and his gospel and his people are mocked and derided. And in some cases, not just mocked and derided, but now called evil. Now called evil. Not just not admired, not just not respected, not just only tolerated, not just made fun of as prudish and antiquated, naive, but now evil, now bigoted, now hateful. For the first time in our nation's history, we're being told by many in the world that we, we, we should be ashamed of ourselves and our gospel and our God. It's all over the place if you look for it on social media. If you have an eye for it, it's everywhere. We're part of a hateful, bigoted, oppressive, patriarchal complex of subjugation and slavery. That's increasingly what Christianity is held to be by many in our culture from academia, through to the schools, through to media and Hollywood. And so for many of us, in our, our inclination and in response to that is fear and hatred back. Fear to cower, to hide or and or hatred back. And we wanna withdraw from people and institutions where we might encounter that fear and that hatred. And sometimes, you know, God calls us to be shrewd as serpents. There may be very good reasons to withdraw, to protect, to be smart, not throw our pearls to swine or give to dogs what is sacred. But it really depends on, on where the motive is for that. Because about the world, those institutions, those people, God says, you're indebted to them. For my sake, you have an obligation to them for my sake. You want to simply hide? You want to simply cower? Or you want to simply hate? No, no, you're, you're indebted. You have an obligation to them. So where we're tempted to indulge in thinking like the political and social pundits on the radio, on TV, on the web, who ridicule and mock, typically in our culture, it would be, they would mock and ridicule left-leaning extremism. Extreme, not, not the extremism itself, but the, the personalities. Not just the ideas, but the actual people. People. 
the ideas, in many cases, on the far right and the far left are worthy of ridicule and mocking. But the people themselves become objects of contempt and disgust and ridicule. Not just the ideas that are opposed to the truth, but the people themselves become targets for mocking and ridicule in a spirit of self-righteous superiority and a spirit of hatred and a spirit of condemnation. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're indebted to them. For my sake, you have an obligation to them. You are to represent me to them. You carry my name. You are my spouse. Remember last week? You are Mrs. Jesus Christ. And if, the, and if they feel the disgust and the contempt and the hatred and the self-righteous superiority from Mrs. Jesus Christ, how are they going to hear me saying to them, come to me, come to me? Come to me for rescue. Turn to me. I will heal you. I will forgive you. How are they going to hear that if we're just full of vitriol towards them? In Romans 12, Paul says, repay no one for evil. Repay no one evil for evil. We, I think I have this. Yeah, that's it. Repay no one, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. How many times do you see professing Christians on Facebook or do you yourself, because I have, hit back in these debates with snipey, sarcastic, Implicit mocky attitudes that just fan the flames, fan the flames. And you, you know these people or yourself, you know you could say the same thing and you could be polite and you could be gentle and you could reshape the words so you don't cower, you don't hide, but you don't hate either. And Paul says that, don't pay evil back for evil. When you get hit, with spite and vitriol and mocking. Don't do it back. He says, no. Do what is honorable in the sight of all. Because not only are they looking at you, but there's an audience around you now on social media, especially looking at how Christians respond or professing Christians respond when they're belittled and mocked. And they love to see the Christian cover themselves in mud and filth just like them because it makes them feel like, ha, got ya. Love your enemies guy. Jesus loving guy. No, no, look at you. You're just like me. You're just as hateful. Your gospel's hollow. So Paul says, don't do that. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. One day, God will bring this age, the age of the gospel that's being offered to all people through his people, because we're the ones who have to make that offer. The apostles are gone. He's left it with us, the church. And one day, he's going to bring this time, this window that's not going to last forever. He's going to close the window. And he will stop asking people to accept his offer of forgiveness. He will stop it. It won't be there anymore. The gospel will have made its appeal. It will have worked its way through every tongue, tribe, and language, and the door will be closed. That's why we live in the time we live in. It's not because God's not real and he's not there or he's scared or he doesn't, he's just simply only a God of love and not a God of vengeance. No, no, he's patient. He is loving. He is patient. And he's given a window of time for mankind to put down his rebellion and come back to him and say, forgive me. 
You are God. And how dare I reject you in your ways. But he's going to bring that time to an end. And it will be time for judgment. It will be time for him to repay. That will be a very, very awful day for many people. So until then, let us be those who take pride, not in ourselves, but in our savior and his gospel, which is the power of salvation. And let's not be intimidated by those who tell us that our faith is hatred and our faith is bigotry. They don't know what they're talking about as we tell them that we love them and that God calls them to repent. You don't do that with people you hate and your phobia over. You don't tell them that God loves them and you love them and he's calling them back to you. He's calling you back to him. Let's not be intimidated by him. Let's not shrivel before those who mock our God as the grandpa in the sky for the naive. Let's not be ashamed of the gospel. Let's beg him for help to not be ashamed of the gospel. But let's not return contempt for contempt either. Let's remember that until he comes in judgment, we represent not judgment, but Jesus' offer of salvation to the world. And while the offer remains, we are his ambassadors and we are indebted for his sake to these people who would mock Christ and ridicule the gospel, call us evil bigots. We're indebted to them to repay no one evil for evil, but to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Amen. Amen. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, I just ask you to please give us what you deserve, (laughs) the boast of who you are. Lord, thank you that we can be proud of our God and we can be proud of our Savior. Thank you that you have given us your name, that we are Mrs. Jesus Christ. We are your bride. You have covered us with honor and dignity that the world does not see, the world does not acknowledge, but you do. Would you give us, Lord, power to not be ashamed of your gospel? Would you give us grace? Forgive us for ways that we are ashamed of your gospel. Forgive us for ways that we are, Lord, intimidated, not by the fear of you, but by the fear of others, Lord. Help us. And help us, Lord, to remember that we're their debtors for your sake, We're under obligation. We're under obligation to our coworkers, to our neighbors, to members of our own family, to represent not ourselves, not to twist and contort ourselves to make them love us in in weird ways that just imprison us. Lord, we're under obligation to represent you, Jesus, to them. Help us to do that. In your holy name we pray, amen.